1: Thank you all for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Neige. Um, you know, we're coming to the last week or so of Women's History Month. Uh, I think if you listen to the show regularly, you know, I've never been a fan of how we have these months where we sort of say, "Oh, well, this month we'll talk about women. Uh, this month we'll talk about African Americans because as you know on this show, we think we need to talk about uh people of all diverse types uh throughout the year." That said, this is the last week of Women's History Month. And what's the reason I'm mentioning it today is that the alliance that uh, oversees the themes of Women's History Month this year chose as their theme celebrating women who tell our stories. And they say the theme honors women in every community who have devoted their lives and talents to producing art, pursuing truth, and reflecting the human condition decade after decade. And I can't think of a better description of our very special guest today. She is now V. Uh, You may remember when she was Eve Ensler in 1996, uh, she burst onto the scene when she performed her one-woman show, wrote and performed her one-woman show, The Vagina Monologues, which opened women's eyes, and for many men like me, to um, realities about women's lives, their um, subjugation in terms of violence against them, rape and assault, um, their lack of understanding of their own bodies. Um, She has since then gone on to be one of the fiercest warriors on behalf of fighting violence against women, helping women heal in the world uh, today and she has a brand new book called uh, "Reckoning," which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But just a, a couple more brief notes about the. Uh, um, in 2018, the New York Times said that no recent hour of theater has had a greater impact worldwide than um, than the Vagina Monologues, calling it one of the 25 best American plays since Angels in America, which is saying quite a bit clearly. Charles Isherwood, in a, uh, a look at the play, said, probably the most important political theater of the last decade. He wrote that in like 2006. He also said something kind of funny about it. He said, vagina monologues over the years has been produced in so many countries, in so many languages, that it rivals Starbucks as an international brand. <laughs> um, so we're very fortunate to have V on today to talk about her life and her new book, Reckoning. And joining me for this conversation is former State Senator Jen Jordan, who, as I think all of you know, has been a fierce advocate for women's rights and uh, was, was um, uh, fierce in that regard during her tenure uh, in the Senate. So, Jen, uh, let me say a quick hello to you, and then we'll bring in V.
2: Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Really, really necessary conversation this morning.
1: Um, v, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. We're we're thrilled to have you here.
0: Well, I'm thrilled to be here. I was laughing at um, your Starbucks reference. The um, difference between um, V Day and Starbucks is we actually believe in unions, and um, we don't <laughs> we don't brand people. Um, we 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 uh, expand. We don't brand.
1: <laughs> so, Yeah, good, good. I'm glad you point that out. I do want to say, uh, you know, we know that for those people who listen to the show live at nine in the morning or the repeat at two in the afternoon, if you have little kids around and you're uncomfortable with hearing words like them hearing words like vagina and the like, you may want to turn the radio off or turn it way down. If you're listening to the podcast, uh, which most of you do, just play it in your ears. That way you don't have any problems at all. The uh, we'll talk in a few minutes about why you no longer call yourself Eve Ensler. But but if I may, can we go back to 1996 and I, a quick personal story? I think that the opening night of Vagina Monologues off Broadway was the first week of October 1996. My wife mm-hmm. Janice had our daughter Emma about five weeks later, and as I was mm-hmm. reading Reck- Reckoning. It occurred to me that in many ways she lives in a different world as a young woman today, thanks to the work of you and others who have helped her understand what it means to be a strong, independent woman. She's involved in a relationship of two equals. Um, and so I sort of feel a gratitude to you as we start this conversation. Can we go back to 96? You say the first time you. you ever performed vagina Monologues, you were sure somebody was going to shoot you. Talk about how daring it was to do that show.
0: Well, people always say, like, were you excited? Were you happy? I go, I just wanted to survive the first show, you know, and, and get through it. Oh, you know, it was really different then. People can't even imagine. You couldn't say the word vagina. You couldn't say it. Out loud, you couldn't say it on television, you can say it on radio, you can you could say penis, by the way, but you could not say vagina. And I, I always wonder, I, I always think it's funny that we can say scud missile or plutonium or nuclear war or all these words are fine. But to talk about vaginas, which are actually a biological part of our bodies, there's nothing dirty about them. They are, they are an organ, they are part of us. Um But it was really scary then because people weren't talking about it. And I think that first, I'll never forget that first performance at here. It was a very small little theater. It was kind of like I was just trying a few things out. I I literally couldn't breathe before I went on. But I have to say, the minute I opened my mouth and started to talk and to tell the stories, it was immediate, the response. It was like women had been waiting, and men, but women primarily had been waiting for these stories to be told, and for this, for these issues to be addressed, and for 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 the shame and for the silence to be lifted, um, and it it was like that from that moment on, you know.
1: For for those who are, have never seen or don't know about vagina monologues, you you had interviewed something like two hundred women. Uh, Ask them to talk very candidly about their lives. Had they been assaulted, raped? How did they feel about their own bodies? Had they ever ever explored their bodies uh, physically? And from those conversations, you created a series of characters who told those stories over the course of an evening. Jen, jump in.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we all have a personal story if you're a woman about vagina monologues. And I remember going, um, I was very um, early to Atlanta, and it was being performed um, as part of kind of a charity thing. So a friend of mine had taken a part, and this was a a young woman who was younger than me, was also from not Atlanta. And I had no idea what I was walking into. And I walk into this, and she she has this character, and I was just kind of blown away by it. And it was funny because I was talking to her the other day and and said we were going to do this. And she said, you know, that's the first time I ever said certain words in front of my mother Mm -hmm. um, when she was there at the performance. And I thought, you know, that it, it was such a pivotal thing in terms of it provided permission to use language, right? And kind of put light into darkness. Um, And I think that's, I think that's what women were drawn to. I mean, it was kind of, um you didn't feel so alone, right? It was a mm-hmm. shared experience. So I really, um, on behalf of many young women, it's, I'm not so young anymore. Um, You know, really, <laughs> really, I, I thank you for that.
0: Well, you know, I, I think, I think what I always felt is if we can't talk about something, if we can't say the word, we can't know the word. And so all kinds of terrible things can happen to you when you can't share what's going on. Right. And I think just being able to utter the word was a radical opening. It, it, it's, it's kind of opened the doors of of stories and needs and rage and pain and suffering and joy and excitement. But I, it really taught me that language is so powerful like when you have language to something, it be, you begin to exist and it begins to exist, you know?
1: Um, we should well, point and there's out a real light that...
2: that- Right? Like, it, it, you know, not just to jump in, but there's when you put light onto it. I mean, in the darkness, that's where things ferment. That's mm-hmm. where shame is and where mm-hmm. you think you are all alone. And the reality is, and that's kind of what happened with the Me Too movement as well. It was like, It wasn't startling for women to hear all these stories because they knew it um, because they knew their own experience and they knew I was telling my husband the other day, I was like, I don't know a woman alive who hasn't been assaulted. Harassed, raped, and it is terrifying as a mother of a fourteen-year-old because I know it is the reality of a woman's life in this world to have to deal with one of these things, and and it's just it's almost like you don't want to talk about it because then you have to you have to call it out and it's real, um, and when it's real, it can happen to you and it can happen to the people you love.
0: No, and I I think what I look, I certainly knew there was violence against women before I started doing the show because I'm a survivor. But I had no idea of the pandemic, the, the proportions of it, the, the global magnitude. Uh, you know, and it really, for me, became very clear quickly that it is the mother issue. Look, if women are under constant threat and they know they can be raped, they can be beaten, they can be cut, they can be incested. If that threat is is always looming, it curtails everything about who we are, what we are, what we believe is possible in our lives. And I think if if we really could address that and look at, you know, it is the methodology that sustains patriarchy. It is what keeps patriarchy in its place,
1: you know. Um, so so let's talk about the progression of your, and I think movement is a fair word for it. Um, the, the Vagina Monologues becomes an almost instantaneous uh, success and begins raising awareness uh, very quickly, you won an Obie Award, which is the off-Broadway equivalent of a Tony, and a number of years later, um, you were honored with a uh, an award, a Tony Award, uh, the Isabel Stevenson Award for an individual in theater who's made a substantial contribution of time and effort on behalf of human humanitarian, social service, or charitable organizations. To quote uh, from the award, and and that's because. Out of the vagina monologues, you and a number of associates created what became known as V-Day. So tell us a little bit about what the origins of V-Day and what it is to this day.
0: Well, I think as I was saying earlier, when I began to see women lining up after every performance, literally to tell me their stories, stories they had never told anyone before, I mean, every place I went, it was lines and lines of women. I started to get very overwhelmed because the stories were so overwhelming. And I was like, either I'm going to stop doing the play or I'm going to use the play, figure out how we can use the play to really build a movement to end violence against women and girls and trans and and non-binary people. And so I got a group of women together in my living room, which I believe is where all Great movements begin in kitchens and living rooms. And <laughs> I said, we have this play. What could we do? And we came up with this idea to on February 14th to make Valentine's Day a real day of love, where women don't get beaten up on that day, where women get are safe and empowered and feel good. And we do one performance of the vagina monologues, and we try to raise money for local groups that were working to stop violence, whether they be shelters or um, hotlines or just any. And so we picked groups in New York and we got this huge theater, 2,500 seats. And I asked all these amazing actor friends, Glenn Close and Whoopi Goldberg and Susan Sarandon. And um, it was just amazing who showed up and. We performed the show and everyone was petrified because no one had ever done it. Everyone was just like holding hands back to the stage and screaming every time anybody went forward. And that night, 2,500 people showed up and it was like we blew the roof off the theater. But what was very exciting (laughs) is we raised a lot of money for those local groups. And we realized we had a model that we could use the play all over the world to raise consciousness and raise money and 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 be connected to local groups like you were saying in 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 atlanta you you know what we then did is said okay Karen nobel this wonderful young woman said i'm going to bring this to colleges another woman said i'm going to bring this to communities another woman said i'm going to make vagina pajamas another woman said it was like everybody just had an idea and the seeds just kind of went went were winded all over the planet and within within a year you know every year um People would sign up to do the show. They would perform it in their local community. All the funds that got raised, I gave the play away free. All the funds that got raised went to their local groups. And every year it just grew and grew and grew until thousands of places were doing it. And over the course of these years, 25 years, we just celebrated this year, we raised, I think we've raised $120 million. And all of that gone, it's the it's the vagina that could, right? It's It's like, you know, power. You know, um, and I think it's a beautiful model because it keeps it local and it keeps it within the hands and the control of communities.
2: But it also is it, it's still a tool, too. I mean, you know, in 96, right, that's when it happened. But I I know, like in 2012, for example, in Michigan at the state capitol, mm-hmm. the the vagina monologues was performed by the likes of people like who was in state Senator Gretchen Whitmer mm-hmm. um, and and other elected women elected officials who <laughs> were pushing against, you know, abortion bans. And there were these T-shirts I remember that was like basically said, if you can't say the word vagina, um, then you shouldn't be able to legislate. You shouldn't be able to regulate it. And it, it, it's it's something that that's almost a political tool now because it gives women kind of this this kind of way to talk about these things Um you know, and really bring it to light. And it didn't make sense, but it but it's continued. It didn't like all in ninety six it was kind of a flash in the pan, and we were all excited. I mean, it has continued to really um you know,
0: be important. I'm so glad you're saying about Michigan because I was actually there. And the reason she, we did it is because she was censored, censored for saying vagina in relationship to abortion. And 5,000 people showed up for that event on the stairs. And it was amazing. But, you know, I've had the privilege now of seeing women in the European Parliament perform it in the Parliament, women in the Haitian you know, Parliament perform it in the Haitian Parliament. They performed it in the Philippines Parliament, and they've been trying to get a law for violence passed for 20 years. And As a result of them performing it, it passed the next week. So I have seen it be performed in places People would not believe, but it has literally shifted legislation, tradition, um, and it's been a, its just been an amazing journey to see brave women bring it to places like Turkey and Pakistan and Indiana, which are all equally right. difficult, right? You know, I, I hold them all in the same repressive mentality, um, and and see women push. Look, I was at Notre Dame, okay because they were trying to outlaw the play. And it's, it, there was literally a thing that the write-up was, can we talk about vaginas in a Catholic university? That was the placard in front of me. I thought, we've already won. We've already won. We're sitting in a Catholic university and we're talking, talking about, about, about vaginas. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: um, the, 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 let, let's get um, really uh, specific and clear about the um, stories that you told in the Vagina Monologue, stories that you continue to see women are experiencing around the world. Um, You've had extraordinary experiences in Bosnia with victims of rape and violence. Um, The same thing in Afghanistan. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But but I, I just want to make sure that our listeners understand how compelling and serious this issue is. So, what I'd like to do for a moment, Natalie, we're going to play the second soundbite. Um, the you did a, a a version of vagina monologues uh, produced by H4 HBO, and you told some you did some of the monologues, but you also showed us interviews of some women, um, which were similar to the kind of interviews you did when you first put this show together. This is very raw but we're going to listen to a section, very sh- a short section of the HBO special in which you talk with women who've experienced rape. And as I say, it's raw, but it's real.
0: Has anyone ever hurt you for Johnny? The worst thing was definitely being raped. And when was that? When I was 14 years old. That was the first time a man ever did enter my body. That was if you were a virgin. And what happened? Um, he had cut me with his fingernails. And then I I walked around trying not to pee, because it hurt.
3: I experienced a date rape in college. This was a very close friend from high school,
2: and he uh, one time was staying over and woke me up in the middle of the night and uh, ripped off my underwear, stuffed underwear in
3: my mouth, um, pinned my knees down with his knees and raped me.
2: It was such an emotional injury that distorts your feelings about your your womanhood, yourself, relationships. It took a long, long, long time to trust anyone and to make really myself feel that it was not my fault. And thank God I
1: didn't
0: catch anything behind it,
1: but um, I was hurt more than my vagina. V, you have heard countless stories like this.
0: I have. And I'll tell you something. It never, ever stops being as disturbing as it was the first story I heard. And the magnitude of the number of women who are still being violated in the world, who are still being raped, who are still being battered, who are still being harassed, who are still being incested, is so ginormous that I think in some ways, we just don't even think about it, right? We just, you know, I was watching this film last night about the Boston Strangler, right? And it, 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 I just got so upset because, you know, 13 women were strangled and murdered and raped and destroyed. And it turned out, I don't know if you remember what happened, but the Boston Strangler was stranglers. And there were many stranglers and they pinned it on this one guy. So all these other men, did their bad deeds to women and never got held accountable. 12 of those women's um, cases still remain open, right? And I think one of the things I just wanna say about rape and about violence is it's not a moment, it's a life, it's a life. You spend your life recovering from it. Building your self-esteem, trusting people again, feeling good in your body, believing you're worthy. We can go down the list of all the ways.
2: Well, and then also trying to protect yourself in the future. I mean, you shut down, right? You don't let people in. You, you know, you don't let yourself grieve. There are all these these kind of after effects in terms of women being able just to survive and keep going. And, and I think that's why we see even with child sexual abuse with women, um, I think the average age that women will come out and actually talk about it is um, maybe 60 years old. Um, and men are the same way in terms of child sexual abuse, in terms of they've got to be in their 40s or 50s before they can even acknowledge that it happened, because the shame, it, it, it's just devastating for them.
0: And it's also um, if you Jen- your body. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Now you leave your body no, no. you disconnect. You know, you don't you don't feel you have a right to share your story because you internalize your perpetrator's shame, right? And I think I, I think I, I, I want to say this. I think women, girls, trans, non-binary children are born open, free expansive, sexual, alive beings. And we are meant to be that. And what violence does is it cuts you at the start, it zaps you at the beginning or wherever you are. And that is intentional. It's how patriarchy keeps women in their place and makes sure they don't get too big, too powerful, too sexual, too alive, too, too, too much of themselves. You know,
1: it's it's not Jen, we talk... We talk about the patriarchy, and and um, and and I understand that term, um, male dominance in in society. Um, but here's my question about, about all of that: To you know, with so many women experiencing assault, um, as as you and V both talk about, to what extent is our society, whether it's here in Georgia or, or cities across the country, to what extent? Uh, is is law enforcement, the courts, how, to what extent are we getting better at going after the perpetrators of crimes against women, or are we not getting anywhere at all, Jen?
2: It, it just depends, mm. right? It is so based on who's in power, right? Who is making the decisions? I mean, there are some police departments, mm. for example, that are doing incredible work in terms of hiring or training their police officers with respect to sexual trauma and interviewing, um, you know, victims of that, because it's a very different type of trauma um, than other kind of crime victims. And so, you know, there are people out there doing the work. But the problem is, as soon as kind of who's in power changes, um, then any of kind of the the progress we've made, it gets completely um pulled back. And so it it is it is a tremendous problem. But i in terms of patriarchy, it and I always have like a I, I go back and forth in my head about it, right? Because I don't want men just as a whole for us just to say they're bad. Right. Like my husband's incredible. I'm raising this incredible son. And I saw this kind of play out with the Kavanaugh hearings. Right. That that there's an either or choice, either you're for men um, or you're against them. Right. And it really, you know, that's what I think people struggle with. It's like when they hear the word patriarchy, it's like, well, I don't hate
0: men. Right. I love men. Right. You know, but but I think I think parallel to that is Patriarchy is a system. It's not men. It's a systemic paradigm that believes there are some people who have the power, and they are usually men, who control things and determine things, and other people who must obey and are beneath them. But men are victims of patriarchy as well.
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely believe that to be the case, as a matter of fact. I, look, I've got to get to our first break of the show. We're going to continue in just a moment with Jen Jordan and V. And in fact, we're going to talk about why V instead of Eve Ensler, among other things on today's Political Rewind.
0: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
1: Former State Senator Jen Jordan and I are talking to V, who, uh, under the name Eve Ensler, became a global uh, superstar, I think that's a fair term in many ways, and and uh, wrote vagina, wrote and performed the vagina monologues, and has gone on in the decades since to be a champion uh, to fighting violence against women in countries around the world. And and before we talk about your decision to change your name, V, it it when you talk about the fact that this still goes on, that. Vagina monologues might have debuted in 1996, but this morning's New York Times. Uh, Pamela Paul, who writes opinion pieces for the Times, filed this story. She went to see Jessica Chastain in uh, the new production of A Doll's House on Broadway right now. And of course, that's Ibsen's story about Nora, an oppressed woman in 1879 whose husband... Uh, is domineering, but weak. She's stronger than he is, but she doesn't get her way in the house. And the play ends with Nora walking out defiantly, and in the traditional staging of the play, she slams the door behind her. It's one of the most famous moments in theater history, Um, which doesn't, by the way, happen in the current production. But here's what, what Pamela Paul wrote. Here we are still... Asking why women's rights, when not outright ignored, are often an afterthought. Still asking why society is so rigid in its expectations of women. What was shocking about Ibsen's play in 1879 was that Nora's act was shocking for its time. What's shocking now is that it is still so shocking. The
0: Oh, I, I saw the production, and Jessica Chastain is absolutely luminous. But I've had the same thought. I, I I walked out and I thought to myself, OK, here we are. Abortions banned in 14 states and going. We're, we have one guy who could determine whether women nationally are allowed to have a, a abortion pill for the day after. We have 21 GOP people who signed a bill pushing for the death penalty for women. We have DeSantis talking about the fact that we can't teach discussion of menstruation to girls and boys before sixth grade as if it's some criminal offense, right? We see the rise of maternal mortality wherever abortion is banned. We can go down the list. We are in such a pushback state right now. And it's because, and I want to go back to patriarchy. Patriarchy is a system that is so embedded in our daily lives that we don't even recognize it anymore. That is the system we have to dismantle Otherwise, we will have one-off victories and then abortion will get pushed back. We'll have one-off, and because as you were saying, Jen, as, as soon as another person comes into power, it all shifts. We have to dismantle this system of the idea that there are some in power who get to determine the rights and the lives and the futures and the careers and the desires of others that we are all living in cooperative, horizontal leadership. That's where we have to evolve to.
1: So, Jan, I want to bring you back in, but let's, let's first, um, V, I've mentioned it several times. You, some time ago, decided you no longer wanted to be known as Eve Ensler. And a lot of it has to do with your given name uh, and the father and mother who gave you that name. Um, it's a very piercing um, story and, and difficult For us to hear, as I'm sure it is for you to talk about, but you were badly abused by your father as a young girl.
0: I was, and I, I, I struggled for many years as those many, many survivors around the world struggle to really lift that bell jar that, you know, descends at that moment, whether it's depression or self-hatred or unworthiness or just an an inability to believe you have a right to be in the world after these events happen. And And then two things happened. One, the Me Too movement happened. And I watched and I waited for men who had been called out to come forward to apologize. And I waited and I waited and I waited and I didn't see one man make a sincere, deep, complex apology. And at the same time, I was aware that my whole life, I believed that my father was going to one day wake up and he was going to apologize to me for raping me as a girl, beating me senseless, destroying my life. And he would come to, and that never happened. I I waited. And even after his death, 31 years, I would sometimes go to the mailbox and think, oh my God, the apology is going to be there. And I finally decided, you know what? if men aren't going to apologize, if my father's not going to apologize, I'm going to write his apology. So I wrote The Apology, a book, where I said all the things to myself. I had him tell me all the things he had done to me, tell me why he had done it to me, tell me all the ways what went into making him the kind of man who could do those things. And it was an excruciating process and very liberatory. And at the end of it, at last line is, old man be gone and i don't know if my father said it or i said it but it was like he went into the universe and i have no more rancor at my father i have no more bitterness i i'm at peace with my father but my father didn't have my best interest at heart he didn't he didn't live for me he didn't want me to thrive he didn't want and i i didn't want his name i didn't want to carry a name of a person who wasn't behind me and with me so i made the decision to let go of that name And to just be V because it just feels light. And I love everything about Vs, whether it's (laughs) vaginas or victories or verisimilitude or they're just or anti-violence. And I'll tell you something interesting. Names are very powerful. They're signifiers. They determine a lot about your life. And since I changed my name, I feel much braver, much more myself, much more able to walk through the world cleanly, being who I am without that attachment to my past.
3: You
2: know,
0: I think one of the things
2: you wrote um, in the book that was really compelling to me as you were recounting when you were 10, I think probably the first violent episode you had with your father. Um, and you wrote, I remember this moment because it was the moment that violence passed into me. Um, and then you went on to say, the moment I became afraid. And I think that was so poignant for me because I think that is, I think women who have been subjected to violence, rape, abuse, that's the it's it's so clear that then you start almost living like another person Um, and everything is about self-protection in some way. And it changes you. I mean, it changes who you are. And and this is what is happening to young girls every day. And and so anyway, I I just felt like that it was just so incredibly important because I think that that anyone who has been subject to, to abuse or violence really understands what you were talking about.
0: Thank you for sharing that, Jen. I think that's so true. I think we don't have any reason to be afraid before that. Right. I mean, look, if we're white people, we certainly have the privilege of being less afraid if we're black or people or people of color. It's a very different story. There's plenty of reasons to be afraid because we live in a, a racist world. But I think when somebody comes at you, when someone hits you, when someone violates you, your whole idea of the world is shattered. You no longer trust. You no longer believe in human beings. You no longer think it's safe. You no longer, you know, I, I, I have a, a joke with my granddaughter who I, it's, you know, I I have a granddaughter and a grandson and I just love them both so much. but. We were we were in Paris together once and she got dressed and I said, have you forgotten your clothes? You know, because she was and she said, Bobby, you're the one who wrote my short skirt. You're the one who told me I should be liberated. And What? I was like, right. I did write that. And then we had this long talk about, you know, how do you keep your sense of freedom and your sense of love of your body and your sense of walking through the world and feeling the rush of your beautiful sexual self in the world and know that we are living in a very violent predatory world and it's so complex to, to even share that with my my grand my grandkids and and, and make them feel like oh my god I, I'm 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 changing your idea of the world but at the same time you don't want your kids to be unprepared for what's out there So it's a very very weird balance, you know?
1: Well, it is a weird balance, knowing, uh, having raised uh, with my wife a daughter who is now 26. And as I said at the beginning, um, I think she's benefited from the many things that you and others like you opened up for her as a free and independent woman. I want to talk about another aspect of your name, Eve Ensler. Um, (laughs) As I read your uh, feelings about being named after the first woman, I thought. Wow. Um, she sounds like my rabbi who has his own interpretation of various uh, uh, passages in Torah and comes up with his own ideas about uh, what they really mean. So with that said, what I'm talking about, of course, is you talk about Eve uh, is as viewed in, in the Torah as um, a, a woman who brings sin into the world, which troubled you as a young girl. Why am I stuck with this name? But then you went on— and you develop your own interpretation of Eve. Just tell us briefly about that.
0: I'm so happy you're asking me about that. Um, you know, it's it's a burden to be a six year old who's fought <laughs> sin and death and 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 you know and been exiled from the garden, and you're responsible for it. But then, it, and then it, I saw this image of a 13th century painting where the snake and Adam and Eve were standing there, and the snake was wrapped around a mushroom tree. And it suddenly hit me. Oh, my God. The tree of knowledge was a psychedelic (laughs) mushroom tree. And that is why God said, do not eat of the tree because you will become God like me. You will see what I see. You will enter the realm that I live in. And so Eve Listening to her deepest sense that there was a garden before the father's garden, before the meme garden, there was actually a mother's garden, which was earth, that was this beautiful place we were born into that didn't need to be tamed, that we didn't need to have dominion over, that we were one with. She ate that mushroom and she realized, she went back to the mother's garden and realized where she needed to be and generously shared the mushrooms with adam because she wanted adam to be with her and i think adam had the joy and bliss of it but was already baked in patriarchy and had to go back and be with the father Well, what's interesting Jen, quick, is that okay what's interesting
2: is that having been raised southern baptist the idea of original sin and women really being the problem um you know, having to break away from that and and kind of reprocess, but it's still being used today because a lot of kind of mistrust of of women and in a lot of, you know, trying to hold them down, you know, folks go back to the Old Testament and specifically Eve, um, that she really is or was the problem. And, um, you know, I kind of like your variation a little bit better.
0: No, she was our first whistleblower. She
1: blew the whistle on that fake garden. With that said, I have got to get to the final break of the show. We'll be back with more with V, whose new book is Reckoning, and Jen Jordan. Jen Jordan and I are talking with V, uh, used to be known as Eve Ensler, who created the Vagina Monologues. It's just one of a number of plays, um, of course, that Eve Ensler uh, has written over the years. Um, uh, the new book, Reckoning, is uh, really starts us off. It, 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 v, is it, is it fair to say that if I pick up Reckoning, which I did and read through I'm going to get hit with a lot of stuff. You're all over the place talking, sharing so many ideas. I I cannot imagine how active your brain is at what seems to be all times with so many things <laughs> happening. <in> it. <laughs> yeah. It's a really yeah, interesting it's, it's awesome.
0: book. Yeah. Yeah. It's my internal world, it, but it's also like years, it's 45 years of writing, you know, that I wanted to see if I could really weave it together under the umbrella of reckoning, because I think we live in a yeah. country that doesn't believe in reckoning, doesn't know how to reckon, and it is reckoning averse, I would say, beginning with our indigenous, um, beginning with the indigenous who were here and we robbed their lands, moving into 400 years of slavery, moving, you know, on and on. And I think one of the things I think was beginning to happen during COVID is this reckoning both personally and politically was starting to happen. And it was kind of amazing to watch it around George Floyd, watch it around climate change. It was beginning, watch it around really looking at our history and coming to terms with it. And right away, this pushback has occurred of people who don't want to touch Don't want to own. Don't want to be responsible for our history. So I think I wanted to put a book together to say, "Look here, look here, look here. We have to open our eyes and walk through the wound in order to get to the other side."
3: Um, Well, I I think one of the real
0: sorry, Bill.
2: We're. I'm just jumping in. I think I think with reckoning, it, it it's counter to the idea of American exceptionalism, too. Right. Because if we actually take a look at where we've been as a country. Mm-hmm. There have been some horrific um, things that we as a country have done. And so to reckon with all of that means you, you have to you have to put light on it and accept it and move forward. And it's just kind of counter to to even how we're raised culturally in terms of, of patriotism and country and all of that.
0: Well, that goes back to um, apology, right? And and being part of a patriarchal model of never looking at what you've done wrong so that you apologize for it, reckon with it, and move on. And And I'm just thinking about the 20th anniversary of Iraq. I was having breakfast with Barbara Lee the other day, our congresswoman, the only congresswoman who voted against both those wars. And I looked at her and I just started crying, thinking of what that war, those wars have wrought, what they have brought, and how we still haven't reckoned with them. We're moving into more wars and more wars, and they license the authority to just go to war anytime we want to go. So I think reckoning is critical if we don't want to keep Repeating and repeating mistakes, atrocities, misery inflicted on other people.
1: V, um, uh, as we we've, we've got some time left, but we are uh, getting toward the end of the show. And if I may, uh, I'd love to talk with you about uh, City of Joy in Congo. You talk about wars. You talk about a country wrecked by violence. And uh, warfare, uh, slavery, subjugation—you can go all the way back to the rubber plantations and see how the uh, people of Congo were badly abused as they um, uh, extracted rubber from trees uh, in the interests of the capitalists uh, who were um, um, uh, taking all of the riches of the country. And and you you and a number of other people are now involved in something called City of Joy and. When I read about City of Joy, I was just thrilled. Tell us a little about it.
0: Well, I I feel like City of Joy is really one of the holiest places I've ever been on the planet, and also one of those most brilliant places. You know, when I first went to Congo, really, it's been over 15 years ago, invited by Dr. Denis McGuaghe, who won the Nobel Peace Prize several years ago. Um, He invited me because the war was inflicting so much damage on women's bodies through sexual violence, and he needed help getting the word out. Um, And he said, you were the only person who was talking about vaginas. I had interviewed him in New York, and I talk about them all the time, and no one will listen to me. So I went, and I have to say, I've been in a lot of war zones. I was in Bosnia. I was in Kosovo. I've been in Afghanistan, but nothing prepared me for what I saw in the Congo. It was where... The extraction of the resources and capitalist madness combined with racism, combined with incredible misogyny, was literally destroying the bodies of women in the name of extracting resources that didn't belong to anybody but the Congolese. And I spent a, quite a bit of time there um, with my sister, mm. Christine Schuler who is the person who runs City of Joy, is an extraordinary activist and leader. And we we spent time interviewing women there, asking them, what do they want? What do you want? And they said, we want a place. Where we can change, where we can grow, where we can heal, where we can become leaders. So ten years ago, with the help of my board, Pat Mitchell, who I know all of you know so well, she's a Georgia, a Georgia person. Um, you know, with my board, with all all our people, really helped us raise the money to turn over and 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 support the women of Congo opening this extraordinary sanctuary for healing and revolutionary center. And we've now graduated close to 2000 women who have gone on to be incredible leaders in their community, like transforming people. The place is so beautiful. It is so full of joy in the midst of so much. The war is still raging. It's still going on, but there's a jewel in the middle of it where this new energy is being born every day and literally spreading all around it. You know, teaching us that wherever you are, if you transform that place to become a place of love, to become a place of of, of care, to become a place of connection, you begin to infect everything around you.
1: It's an extraordinary story. Um, and you had experiences in Bosnia with women who had been the victims of uh, terrible rapes and sexual abuse. I think a play came out of it. Necessary Targets was a play you wrote after your experiences in Bosnia. So it is, Jen, it's extraordinary to think about this woman, V. <laughs> e. Evensler, in 1996, gather stories about these women. And here we are, more, you know, decades later, and there are women around the world benefiting from the work that she and allies have been doing, Jen, to help women uh, wherever they can.
2: Well, benefiting, but I think she's also continuing to show light how it continues. It isn't just a point in time, um, as V indicated. It is it is ongoing. It is a constant um, struggle for every new generation of women and girls. And I think that's what's important, right? It's not just one thing, one moment. Okay, we got this done. Now we can sign off. Um, and I know that you still are doing work and talking to women um, in Afghanistan,
0: Yes, I am. And I, I love that you said that, Jen, because what we know about patriarchy is we move forward, it pushes it back. We move forward, it pushes it back. Because until the system is unraveled, I, I, I got this astoundingly disturbing email yesterday from Afghanistan. And I, I don't think I have time to read the whole thing. But what I will say is it basically was talking about the fact that there was a little boy on the street who was washing cars early in the morning and this one of our sisters there went up and said why are you washing cars when you should be in school and he said i have four women in my family and none of them can leave the house they can't go out um because if they do um they can't go to work they don't have jobs and so she went to the house and all the women were huddled in a corner freezing cold there was a stack of stale bread which they were all gonna eat that day if they were lucky with water and sugar. And they basically said, we can't go out even in our burqa because the Taliban who doesn't believe in premarital sex and doesn't, is raping so many women that we can't be on the streets in Afghanistan now. So we know five years ago in Afghanistan, We had a center there. Women were being educated. Women were free. Women were beginning to evolve. And here comes the Taliban. The U.S. leaves without any protection, without any forethought. The Taliban's there, and they're back in the dark ages. And it happens like that. Look what's happening in this country with abortion rights. It happens overnight. So we have to be vigilant. We have to know that until the system of patriarchy is dismantled, it is an ongoing struggle and ongoing work to keep women, trans and non-binary people free and safe. And we have off to wake up right now because this right wing is pushing back faster than any time in my life. I have never seen a pushback happening so quickly.
1: Uh, the, um you've already answered a question uh, which I was gonna ask, which was how hopeful are you for the future? And obviously you're concerned, very worried about the future. Um, and, and I appreciate the fact that you've talked to us about it so candidly. We're, we're really just about out of time. But one of the joys of the show is how we get. Oh, I'm go, sorry. No, I just go want ahead. to say
0: one thing. I'm both hopeful and, and I'll tell you why I'm hopeful. We have a massive movement called Vida and One Billion Rising. There are women all over the planet. 60,000 women workers (sighs) rose up in Barcelona this week. Teachers are rising up in L.A. We are seeing women across this planet organizing. We had more risings this year in OBR than we have in the last 10 years. I believe in the power of movements and coalitions, gay people, LGBTQ people, um, black people, brown people, Asian people, women have to come together and we have to fight as one against the forces that are trying to tear us down. Uh,
1: v, what an hour. I am so grateful to you for uh, joining us for today's show. The new book is Reckoning. By the way, I got a note from the artistic director of a theater here in Atlanta named Horizon Theater who was very excited when she heard you to say she did her show, Vagina Monologues, at my theater in 1998 in Atlanta. So nice. Lisa that Adler. Like, <laughs> That's and they right. Long
0: before anyone, long before anyone. That's...
1: They were very Um <laughs> uh, Jen Jordan, I couldn't have asked for a better partner for today's show. We're completely out of time. Back again with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nuggett. Please take care. Stay healthy and take care of each other. Bye, everybody.